Welcome to the Terawatt Space Podcast. This is Aravind. In this podcast, I attempt to demystify the developments in space tech by interviewing thought leaders, analysts, and investors in the space industry. Today, I'm speaking with Namrata Goswami, a strategic analyst and consultant on space policy, international relations, great power politics, and alternate futures. Namrata has authored a number of books on those topics, with the latest one focusing on the second space race titled Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space, co-authored with Peter Garretson. In this episode, Namrata and I discuss all things geopolitics and how it is very relevant in the world of space. We touch upon topics including whether there is a Cold War brewing between the US and China, the role of Russia, India, Japan and Europe in the global space race, and the emergence of the spacefaring nations in the Middle East. Namrata also provides her thoughts on why Elon Musk is so special for the space industry and also provides a note of caution in our quest for a future in space. And now I bring you Namrata Goswami. Hi Namrata, how are you? Hi Aravind, nice, I'm good and nice to be here. Very good, so let's get started and usually the first question that I ask my guests is to, to tell their story and um, you know, I'm going to ask that as well. You have uh, you have a very interesting background, and you know you're concentrating on a aspect of space that not a lot of people uh, usually think about, but it's still very important. But I'll still uh, you know like to hear your story. Sure. So uh, the fact that I'm working on space policy and space programs today of different nations. Uh, draws back to my upbringing in Northeast India, where I got exposed to books on international relations, world politics, grand strategy, uh, especially when I was in high school uh, from my father's library. So I've always had a deep interest in uh, international relations and world politics. And uh, I saw space as a part of nations, especially at that time in the 80s and the 90s, uh, looking at space from a very uh, geostrategic, uh, grand strategic perspective during the Cold War. And so my interest in understanding how nations behave, including their behavior in space, can be uh, drawn back to my upbringing in those uh, times. And uh, today, uh, because of my expertise in international relations, especially since I uh, did a PhD in that topic uh, in India, uh, it felt like a very natural fit to then see how nations behave uh, in space uh, today. Absolutely, and um, and I see that you you've written a book as well that that came out last year, um, and it has a very interesting title as well. Uh, it's called "Scramble for the Skies: The Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space." Uh, you co-authored it um, with a colleague, I believe, maybe. Nice if you can tell uh, our listeners uh, what it's about. Sure. So uh, the book Scramble for the Skies that I co-authored with Peter Garretson uh, looks at how space conversations, especially at the level of intellectual conversation, then makes it to policy and then actually gets implemented in terms of programs and missions. So uh, what the book does is that it highlights the Cold War conversations around space, especially from a very competitive geopolitical perspective to what it is today, a continuation of state investment in space, but also a change in the discourse from looking at space as somewhere that you can show off a better technology so that your ideological 
perspective is more attractive, especially capitalism versus communism, to becoming much more about developing capacity, which is long term and sustainable today. So the chapters in the book uh, talks about that theory development in terms of how space programs move from their uh, embryoic state to becoming uh, very mature programs. It traces uh, policy statements by important political leaders, uh, space enthusiast community conversations to becoming more uh, operational programs from space programs. And then uh, what is important is that the book also looks at specific cases. So it looks at the case of the US, China, India, but also looks at countries like UAE and Luxembourg and how they are actually uh, influencing the discourse on space today, if not during the Cold War. Finally, the book offers uh, future perspectives on where uh, this kind of conversation around space resources, the scramble for the moon, for example, that is happening as we speak, how is it going to influence future space policy and space development, given the fact that the discourse on space has changed today? So that, in a nutshell, is what the book is about. It's more than 400 pages, so it's a, it's not just a one-day read, but it offers a lot of academic resources. Uh, you know, if somebody wants to uh, invest much more time, the book has a very comprehensive uh, bibliography as well for anyone wanting to uh, invest in this particular research. Sounds exciting. Um, I mean, the the link between, you know, space and geopolitics is, you know, it's not new, but it seems like the recent conversations, or at least, you know, for, for me, um, I thought that the, you know, the recent conversations are, you know, you've kind of moved on from that age and, uh, you know, if you're moving towards, let's say, a commercial space and, you know, what's called new space today. So it seems like based on what you say about the book and, you know, also to get the conversation started, uh, it doesn't seem like it seems like not much has changed um, in space uh, since the Cold War era, or am I mistaken? Because you know, with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and uh, Richard Branson, and you know, all the new startups that's uh, that are coming up, it, I thought you know, coming into the space industry a few years ago, that you know, that's the past. You know, you can read the history books about it, but it seems like that is actually the present. Correct. In a sense, if you look at the kind of conversations around space today, it's still very much determined by states. So if you look at, for example, the mission goals that are set uh, to go back to the moon by uh, the United States uh, under the Trump administration or President, former President Obama's asteroid uh, missions. Uh, and so you can see that uh, even today, the policy goals, the regulatory frameworks are very much set by the state. The second important framework that uh, private companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin, which actually are game changers in a sense, uh, have to still navigate is that there is still a very competitive environment between, say, the U.S. and China, especially uh, in terms of how, uh, for example, lunar exploration is going to be uh, brought about. So China actually has one of the most advanced programs uh, in terms of lunar development strategy. But you can see that. Uh, the U.S. is catching up, especially through its uh, commercial payload services uh, program, where it's offering or actually contracting out uh, to companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX. Blue Origin, with its, of course, uh, a Blue Moon Lander, uh, has got a contract today. So uh, fascinatingly, the discourse doesn't seem to have changed in terms of its 
state-to-state -state competition. But I think what has changed is the growing significance of the private space sector, especially in the United States, if not in countries like China or India. Definitely. And it seems like uh, the private sector has a lot of you know, terms to dictate in terms of what technologies they have to offer as well. And do you then see, uh, you know, taking a step back, uh, both with space professionals and, you know, enthusiasts of the space industry, do you think that they generally uh, think about the geopolitics of things? Because personally, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of focus on the technology and, you know, rightly so, because, you know, it's very hard technology and, you know, very advanced as well. But people seem to underrate the, you know, the geopolitical side of things when it comes to space. So how do you, how much do you think it's important in, in today's age to, let's say, keep track of, of these and, you know, be mindful of this, uh, whether you're, try, you know, trying to start up or you're just, you know, reading uh, news about what's going on in space industry? How important is it to be aware and mindful of the whole geopolitics? That's a great question. So I agree with you that when you look at the development of just technological breakthroughs, uh, new, new companies, including space startups, are just focused on the technology. After all, that is their role. Their role is not to engage in foreign policy or geopolitics uh, in a direct manner. But I think uh, I would say that in some sense, because, uh, for example, you have a company like SpaceX, especially uh, Elon Musk, who talks about establishing a Martian city by 2075. Uh, has plans to uh, make human beings interplanetary. You have Blue Origin talking about O'Neillian kind of colonies where the Jeff Bezos aspires to uh, lift any kind of uh, heavy industry uh, beyond low Earth orbit. So in that context, uh, I would be amazed if uh, there is a lack of understanding of the regulatory frameworks set about by states via the United Nations, including the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. You have the Liability Convention. You have astronaut rescue uh, agreements. So unless uh, space enthusiasts or those who develop technology have a deep understanding of what the geopolitical implications of what they are doing, uh, it could end in failure because there could be regulatory frameworks that they are unaware of, for example, uh, the Outer Space Treaty, Article 1, very clearly states that uh, space is the province of mankind. Uh, and so in that context, if a private company invests in a particular technological breakthrough and hopes to get return of investment, how do they then navigate the international regulatory frameworks that are in place already? So in that context, I think a deep understanding of geopolitics, especially by United States-based companies, because countries like China, the private sector is very much in tune with what the Chinese state agencies are doing, what is China's aspiration as a state. They come under the civil-military fusion strategy, so they are not unaware of the geopolitical significance of what they do. But I think in the U.S., there is a tendency to behave as if geopolitics does not matter, the political system of another state does not matter. So uh, despite the fact that the Chinese uh, space system is a very authoritarian system, uh, has uh, involved, the Chinese state is involved in several violations of human rights and behaves in a very 
nationalistic uh, you know, way, I think there is a lack of understanding that that kind of state political system is not going to change, even though there is a cooperative framework in space. So in that context, I think I always make this point in my writing that technology should not be the end goal of strategy. Technology should fit in with grand strategy and geopolitics. So, for example, if you develop reusability that brings down the cost of space launch, where people like you and me can hope to go to space one day, what is the impact of that in the overall grand strategy of a state? So I think it's very critical, but there is a lack of understanding, I must confess. Sure, no, it seems like it. And which brings me to, you know, the concept of the the space power theory. And it seems like, uh, based on what you're saying, that every state has, let's say, a strategy and, you know, they, they look at how space can fit in with that strategy and any development within the space industry kind of have to fit in with that strategy. And, you know, I, I, I think that it kind of relates to what you talk about space power theory, is that correct? Is that the you know the understanding of what space power theory means? Um, it'd also be nice to know you know what it means and what it means for you know the wider world and you know the wider space enthusiast community. Sure. So it fits in in a way if you look at it from a very geopolitical framing perspective. And so uh, as you said in your podcast before in our conversation that there is a shift towards commercialization. There is a shift towards private space sector. Uh, which was not accounted for in the Cold War when the uh, regulatory frameworks were established. For example, the Outer Space Treaty was crafted by the US, the USSR, and the United Kingdom, and then was ratified by several other countries. But in fact, they didn't even talk about what happens when you have uh, private space entities. The Moon Treaty did not want the private space sector to be involved in lunar development because of the United uh, Union of Socialists, uh, you know, Soviet Republic's worry that uh, private sector is exploitative and they wanted a very socialist kind of framing. So in that context, how does space power fit in? So uh, space power is drawn from the international relations discourse on power, which basically means that when a country wants to have power, uh, and by extension, say space power, it means that it has the capacity to demonstrate both uh, presence and capability that can deter another country from not engaging in something that is not beneficial to the country that is demonstrating space power, or alternatively, space power is a mechanism to encourage, influence another actor, by which I mean another country, to behave in a manner that is beneficial to the country that is uh, broadcasting space power. So, for example, if the United States engages in uh, hardening, for example, its uh, military space satellite or civilian space satellites that are so much important for our communication and civilian infrastructure. So in that context, if the United States develops space power, by which it would mean an ability to secure its uh, civilian and military space infrastructure, so that power will then have the capacity to broadcast and influence an adversary country from not engaging in a behavior that might threaten the United States space infrastructure. So that's basically the concept of space power. Interesting. It, it, it seems like a very interesting concept. And uh, I cannot, you know, I, I did not make the connection before, but maybe that's why you see a lot of 
space agencies being established today because there are so many space agencies being established, you know, even on a daily, weekly uh, basis, countries that, you know, you wouldn't expect or countries that, you know, are actively, let's say, increasing their budgets to either develop their infrastructure, they're looking at developing their communication satellites, or some are looking at, uh, you know, developing their own spaceports. Uh, there are a lot of news coming in, and we'll get into, you know, specific countries later. But is that why um, you think there's so much, uh, you know, advancements in, in space programs across the world? Yes, because, uh, I mean, as we know, uh, during the Cold War, uh, space was very much connected to uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. So basically, as ICBMs launched, uh, the fear was that they would then be nuclear tipped or that a country might place nuclear weapons in space that could then be used to threaten, for example, either the US or the USSR. So the Outer Space Treaty basically came out of that fear. It was not really about cooperation as it is made out to be today. It was about ensuring that another country, especially the two Cold War superpowers, are not able to place uh, weapons of mass destruction in space. And if one country uh, cannot do it, uh, neither can the other. So it was mostly about restricting space uh, weaponization. But today, as we have moved forward from the end of the Cold War to today, space has become a critical component of almost everything that we do. Communications, navigation, you know, GPS, uh, weather forecasting. So in that context, uh, what happens is that countries, for example, uh, like Australia or uh, Japan, which is actually quite an old space power, but UAE, which is new, has started to invest in space because it realizes that space is not just about military command and control or missile precision navigation. Space has become so critical for any society to function today, including satellite-based internet, uh, e-commerce, e-education. And we realized that during the time of COVID. And so, that's the main reason why you have countries that have woken up to the prospects of space. The second reason why countries are investing in space program is because the return of investment from space is huge. So for example, uh, the return of investment from just satellite-based communication system is about $400 billion. Uh, it's annually, it's estimated to be in the trillions by 2030. So there is a huge market out there that countries now want to tap into so that they can also benefit from their own uh, you know, satellite or space-based infrastructure. And the fact that uh, there are estimates that if you actually move beyond just satellite-based uh, services to actually extracting resources in space, including on the moon or asteroids, the return of investments is in the trillions of dollars. So I think countries have now woken up to that enormous economic return of investment yeah i mean that's that's good news for the space industry anyway because it seems like you know despite the motivation there's still going to be a lot of activity happening in in the space industry and um i mean i i was i was actually looking up and watching a series on on apple tv i believe it's called um for all mankind if i remember well and it has an interesting premise and i don't know if you have seen that uh, it's um it focuses on a world where you know the cold uh, the cold war did not end or you know the ussr did not fall down and the russians happened to be the ones who landed on the moon first 
and looks at the consequences of, let's say, uh, you know, uh, another universe. I don't know if you've checked that out, but I would encourage people who have Apple TV to watch that because it, I think it kind of uh, demonstrates, um, you know, the things that uh, that you've been saying about, you know, the space power theory and what what's going on. And uh, do you, have you watched it? Just uh, just out of curiosity. Yes, I have. And in fact, uh, I also watch the episodes that are available as of today on the second season. So yeah, it's a fantastic show. And I think the first episode was extremely startling for me because, of course, they showed the landing on the moon and then you have a conversation in Russian coming from there. And then you realize that it's an alternate future. So uh, I think it's a fantastic, uh, you know, retelling of history. Uh, of course, there is artistic license, but uh, as as you say, a continuation of that particular Cold War, you know, conflict to today and what it entails. Uh, I thought the characters were very well done. I think there's another show which actually deals with uh, a future where you have humans uh, living and working in space, which is The Expanse. So The Expanse uh, is, of course, available, I think, on Amazon Prime. And so what The Expanse does is that it, it talks about a future where you have uh, Earth as one of the main actors in space, but you also have Mars, you have the asteroid belt, and then you have uh, societies beyond. And what happens when uh, humans actually start settling in uh, celestial bodies outside of Earth? They develop their own identities, like the Mars Martians did, and the Belters, who is a, like a resistance group, did. And uh, very fascinating because it repeats history. So, for example, the establishment of the New World, which was a continuation of European civilization, uh, after, of course, the indigenous communities in North America, they started breaking away from, uh, from the United Kingdom and established their own state and created their own identity, including their own language. So it's, it's a very interesting world that fiction, science fiction, can have a lot to say uh, to us that study geopolitics and astropolitics, a term coined by a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Dolman. Oh, that's uh, that's that's fascinating. Astropolitics as well. So yeah, no, that's uh, interesting to kind of imagine that future. And I wanted to go back to the Cold War, and you know, not the um, not the one that we you know we we got out of in the nineties. But is there a new Cold War developing? Because there's been a lot of storylines about you know the, it's it's always going to be the U.S. versus China, and it's been happening in tech as well in. Uh, and everything to do with software and how apps develop, etc. But it seems like it's also extending to space based on based on what you're saying. So are we seeing, you know, the emergence of a new Cold War or, you know, a, a something similar? Well, I think in the international uh, relations uh, concept, states compete and cooperate depending on what the end goals are or the benefits that you can see vis-a-vis -vis the costs. So I would say that the uh, structure of uh, negotiation or competition today is not really the Cold War. So the Cold War was a lot about, of course, which superpower is more attractive and then alliances based on that. And if you remember, uh, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union was pretty isolated, did not was not included or played an active role in the world economy. Uh, it was a very close planned economic system and so was not integrated with the world. So there are major differences, uh, including if you, if you uh, look at the history of how their space program developed. We both know that both the US and the USSR drew a lot from German technology 
especially the V2, in terms of how they develop their own launch systems. But today, actually, the context is still competition, but it's not confrontation at the level that you had during the Cold War. And I think the distinction is critical. So I think most of us tend to equate competition with confrontation. Competition does not necessarily lead to confrontation. In fact, the very, the very reason we have a space program, that we have rockets, that the Saturn V was developed, or the USSR launched to space was because of competition during the Cold War. It didn't come out of cooperation. And in fact, the global positioning system that we all benefit from today was, was first established to help guide missiles and computers that we use came out of that particular Cold War. So there was a lot of benefits that happened as well. Now, the, coal, the, the context of today is that there is competition between the US, China, Russia, in terms of which particular state offers the more attractive alignment. Uh, Russia and China, especially China, is not comfortable with a US-led space order. And so what China has done, especially under President Xi Jinping, is to offer an alternate vision of space, and which is called the space dream or the China dream, where China is projected as the lead actor in space because in President Xi's conceptualization, which is called Xi's thought uh, of basically a new uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, China is the more attractive country in terms of how nations should be conceptualized and developed. And their space program is included in that particular context. So uh, the difference between the Cold War and the competitive sphere we have today is that China is an integral part of the global economy. It is the second largest economy in the world projected to be the number one economy by 2050 by PricewaterhouseCoopers and several others. Uh, during COVID-19, we saw the impact of China. China was manufacturing ventilators, N95 masks, the medicines that we require. And if China had stopped manufacturing and, and retreated, I think the world would have been in trouble. You saw that in several conversations in the US as well, very dependent on China. A similar context can be extended to space. So China has become very integral to how the space normative frameworks are structured. And so uh, unlike the Cold War, it plays a very critical role in navigating and establishing frameworks of regulation, plays a very important role in the United Nations and projecting itself as an alternative leader. So there are major differences. So we cannot say that it's a repeat of the Cold War, but I would say that states compete in the international relations uh, platform and that competition will continue. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the difference between competition and confrontation, I think it's, it's subtle, but I think it makes a lot of difference and it, it kind of reflects the, the view of um, what's going on today. And what do you think is going on with Russia then? Where does Russia fit into the picture? Is there... Is, is Russia, let's say, a third actor between, you know, the, let's say, the growing competitive world of US and China uh, trying to fit in somewhere or because obviously, you know, they, they kind of have their own, let's say, economic um, challenges that they have to deal with. So, of course, they, they don't have the muscle that they had a few decades back. So what is really the role of Russia today? Russia is actually still a very important space actor, uh, given the fact that it has very advanced space capacity and technology know-how. Uh, 
but I agree with you that the the economic challenges for Russia is very very uh, you know challenging, especially if it wants to invest more in its space program. And the fact that the USSR collapsed, and that's a lesson that Russia will never forget, is because they invested so much in their military and space technology by diverting from very basic requirements of human development. And so I don't think Russia under Putin is going to repeat those mistakes. But it still remains an important actor because of its technology and capacity. And so Russia is actually coming out very with very interesting mission goals in the last few years. So just recently, Roscosmos announced that Russia is also planning, very similar to China's goal for establishing a lunar base by 2036, that Russia will also be investing in capacity uh, to develop lunar presence capacity, uh, extraction of resources capacity, and uh, forming a research partnership with China. So in fact, Russia has uh, teamed up with China to uh, establish a joint base on the moon between the time frame of 2036-2040. And, uh, and that is a critical role because China, of course, is the senior partner here because China has much more resources uh, and ability to invest much beyond Russia's capacity. Uh, so the it'll be interesting to see how Russia will navigate within that China set framework of lunar development because it will be a junior partner and it'll have to negotiate hard in terms of how it can take up some of the programs and partnerships uh, brought about by China. But I think what Russia in cooperation with China is planning is that it wants to offer an alternative lunar development capacity in direct counter to the US established Artemis uh, Accords, uh, the preamble of which has been released by NASA. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it seems like that is indeed the way uh, Russia is moving towards. And what, where does Europe fit into this picture? Because I mean, of course, I'm, I'm saying Europe, but obviously, it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 you can call that uh, UK included, geographically speaking, because there's, there's a confluence of so many powers with, you know, they have their own, let's say, ambitions and challenges as well. But how do you see Europe fitting in? Because it seems like, well, even in terms of the budget and the resources they have, it's not going to compete with US and China, um, at least based on, you know, current events and the current budget. But how do you see Europe fitting into this uh, future? So uh, Europe, especially if we talk about uh, it as a whole, the European Space Agency, uh, they have uh, cooperative, uh, you know, uh, missions with Russia and also with China and as well as with the U.S. So uh, what I hear from conversations coming out from the head of the European Space Agency, as well as other policymakers, is that they see the rise of China uh, especially from a European Union perspective as a challenge, but the European Space Agency is also strategically calculating. So, for example, we know that the International Space Station has got funding to about 2025. It has to be renewed by the U.S. Congress. Now, if funding runs out and the ISS has to, has to be brought down, the only other permanent space station that is going to be up there is the Chinese uh, space station that's being launched this year. And I think they'll complete construction by next year. And China is already signaling to, uh, especially the European Space Agency, that they can now look at it as an alternate platform for their astronauts, 
for science missions and any other kind of academic uh, scientific uh, missions. So I think what Europe is trying to do is to navigate as to which is the most beneficial uh, partnership in terms of how their astronauts can continue their investment in space. The second important thing that the European Space Agency is navigating is, as you mentioned, uh, resources and funding. So uh, there is promise because China under the Belt and Road Initiative uh, includes space in investment deals. And so if you sign up with China, they actually invest, for example, in Europe's uh, new space uh, startups. And so that is something that Europe is also having to navigate. It's not easy because geopolitically, or astropolitically, if I may, uh, there is a very uh, genuine concern about China's or the Communist Party of China, I should qualify that, uh, their authoritarian system, which is based on one party, President Xi is leader for life, which is very counter to Europeans' understanding of how societies should be structured. And space, of course, you cannot uh, put space somewhere else. Space programs are included in that system. So Europe is having to navigate those difficult questions. Now, coming to uh, specific countries, so it is very interesting to see that countries in Europe also are starting their own investment in space. For example, Luxembourg has one of the most advanced uh, space resources mining legislation uh, that it wants to use to attract, uh, you know, country, uh, basically private space sector to come and uh, set up shop in Luxembourg and utilize their uh, legislation. Uh, and Italy actually has signed up to the United States Artemis Accord, but it's also a member of the Belt and Road Initiative. So you can see that, as I mentioned, at the astro-political level, there is a basically, a, how do I say, a navigation between two very different uh, ideological systems. But I think the key driving motivation is who is able to offer economic resources that can develop a particular ecosystem that is also being thought about yeah and it's absolutely fascinating i mean i was just thinking as you were as you were you know talking about europe and how europe fits in because we use the space industry to kind of go up and you know see from there to see that there are no borders and uh, and then it is a space actually the same space industry where the borders seem to matter so much uh, because of the space bar theory that you mentioned. So I just find, find that, let's say, this dichotomy kind of um, fascinating, just that, you know, you go up to see that there are no borders and, you know, it's created by humans. But then, you know, it is the same industry where it seems like, you know, people are competing um, with each other. It's just uh, like, a, let's say, an afterthought based on uh, based on what you're saying. Yes, yes. And actually, I also kind of uh, uh, dwell in that. As, as, as you basically also thought about just now, that we talk a lot about you no know, borderless space or we talk a lot about, you know, once human beings are able to transcend Earth, they're going to become very egalitarian or very, uh, you know, uh, harmonious. But uh, what I observe in terms of behavior on Earth, uh, including, think about it, during the COVID-19 pandemic, I was struck by the nationalistic approach of almost all states. Citizens first, vaccination of citizens first, stopping closing borders to anyone who is not a citizen. So you can see that despite our aspiration for becoming borderless, when we are hit by a crisis, including a pandemic, we all turn inward. Uh, and so we are so scared of the outsider, uh, you know, that the outsider will create uh, a virus. 
uh, in our societies. And if even if you listen to the questioning of, uh, for example, U.S. President, former President Trump or current President Biden by reporters, it's all about what they're doing for citizens. It's not really about the world. And so my, my context is that it was, an, it was a wake-up call because if you now go to space and you have good relationship, but what happens if a crisis happens? You know, ultimately, uh, the launching state or the state to which a particular spacecraft is registered will have to come to the rescue of that particular entity, even if it's a private space entity. So yeah, I also see those uh, you know contra contradictory conversations that happen. Uh, on Earth, and then we talk about space. We think we'll all transcend, but I hope we will transcend. But I'm not sure. Yeah, no, it's definitely a fascinating thought, and uh, I wanted to move on to uh, where we come from, to to India, and to 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 quickly discuss what is its position, because clearly it's it's let's say it's the fourth or the fifth biggest um, space power in the world by budget. Um, I would I would think maybe I'm wrong, but but there is a lot of potential, you know. Obviously, India has its own plans for the for 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 creating its own space station, and you know, for let's say going to space independently. And obviously, it has its uh, resources and technologies. How do you see India's position in the next few years with respect to space? So, if you look at India's space program, uh, yeah, it's a ma it's a major space power, a very old space power since the establishment of the Indian Space Research Organization in 1969. So, it's been decades into the business of space. So, if you look at India's space program, it is uh, very much uh, about traditional goals. So, it's about satellite launches, uh, you know, capability to launch with um, not much money. So in a, that's its uh, unique selling position that it can launch with very less money, including missions to Mars, which are not expensive. So India's space program as of today is still talking about launching, talking about uh, satellite systems, talking about a second mission to Mars. And so in the next five to 10 years, what I see coming out of India's space program is that I think there will be increasing investment in developing a heavy lift uh, rocket. Uh, beyond the uh, Mark III. Uh, and then I think India is also talking about investing in a reusable rocket. So I think the the technology that most nations are wanting to develop, very similar to what SpaceX has succeeded and Blue Origin, is to develop reusable rocket because everybody wants to bring the cost of launch down so that we can have more and more access to space for more and more people and not just elite astronauts. So I think India is investing in that capability. The other important critical dimension which India has uh, showcased in the last few years, especially under the Modi government, is to uh, showcase itself as not just a, a space country that invests in traditional civilian program, but also it's upping its military space capacity. So in 2019, we saw that India uh, you know, tested an anti-satellite uh, system where uh, Mission Shakti, uh, which targeted one of its own uh, satellites. And after that satellite uh, anti-satellite uh, test was successful, Modi tweeted that India has finally become a comprehensive space power, despite the fact that the international space community criticized India for creating debris. So I see that India is going to become more and more about 
not just uh, developing commercial space or civilian space or encouraging its new space sector, but also looking at space from a national security, from a geopolitical perspective. Absolutely. And it seems like, you know, they are, you know, slowly but surely inching towards that, uh, towards that status. I, I don't think we spoke about one of the other old space powers that is Japan. And obviously they... They, I just read that they've also increased their budget significantly to to invest in both exploration programs for you know for the moon and also uh, also within their own uh, military for for reconnaissance satellites and all. But it seems like they are they are still you know being relevant uh, in the in the in the new space era, correct? Yes, they are. In fact, their budget is more than India. It's about 3.8 billion annually. India is about 1.2 billion. And uh, as you know, Japan just successfully returned asteroid samples, uh, I think last year, if I remember, or this year, I might be wrong. But they did succeed in getting asteroid samples that landed in Australia. And so, yeah, Japan is one of the most advanced uh, space, uh, you know, uh, faring countries. It has its own uh, launch capacity. Uh, it has a spaceport, the Tanigashima Space Center. It's actually the largest space complex in Japan. And interestingly, Japan has uh, actually is planning to collaborate with India uh, to the Chandrayaan-3 mission to go back to the moon in a time frame of 2023-2024. And so Japan will uh, launch the mission through its H2 rocket and build a rover for resource prospecting. So that's very interesting that they're actually looking at resource uh, extraction and prospecting as well. And India will build the lander. Now where Japan becomes a strategic actor is that Japan is also part of the Artemis Accords, which India is not a part of, that is uh, go, hoping to develop uh, democratic uh, partnerships for uh, establishing capability to go back to the moon. And so Japan uh, is going to play a critical role. Japanese private space uh, company, iSpace, which is not uh, the Chinese, China also has an iSpace, but this is the Japan-based iSpace. So iSpace, if you look at their mission statement, they say that they have goals to become a company that is maturing its capacity to establish lunar uh, settlements by 2040. And they have actually started collaborating with the Japanese aerospace uh, agency, JAXA, to uh, realize their goal. So their goal is basically to make the Earth-Moon system into an economic zone that is able to return not just investment to Earth, but also create sustainability. So it's a very interesting uh, discourse that we see in Japan. Japan also, of course, has its own space law that regulates its new space sector. So um, Japan will continue to play a critical role in the future of space. Definitely. And yeah, the, the old space actors are, you know, still being relevant. And there are obviously new players coming in. Um, obviously, you know, you, you got to mention UAE because they, they've been doing some, uh, you know, let's say expensive missions and also complex missions such as the Mars missions and, you know, sending their astronauts to the International Space Station. And it seems like there are, you know, other players also within the Middle East that, um that are still remaining uh, relevant and also upcoming. I don't know if you'd classify Israel as an upcoming player, but they've always been relevant there. But I see the role of UAE and Saudi Arabia increasing over, um, you know, over the next few years, uh, simply because of, you know, their 
they're they're looking to diversify their economy and obviously they are looking at it as a you know as 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 not a military power like you mentioned and they're looking at it more from a commercial standpoint how do you see them you know growing over the next few years uh i think uh, a great question again because this brings in the conversation to how uh, space is different today so today you have so many new actors for example i classify uae uh, including Saudi Arabia as a middle power, where they're not great powers, they do not have the capacity that, say, the U.S. or China has, but they are middle powers, and middle powers play a critical role in terms of how uh, you influence the regulatory and normative frameworks that will uh, decide how nations behave or are regulated in space in the next uh, 20, 30 years. So uh, Israel actually is a pretty mature space uh uh, power as well, because the, if you remember, the Israeli space program and agency was established, I think, in 1983. Their ecosystem, they have a budget of about one billion, and they also have their own space launch site, which is critical if you want to become a serious spacefaring nation. So the Palmachin Air Base, which is an Israeli military spaceport, is used for the launch of their own rockets, including the Shavit, which was launched to low Earth orbit. Uh, just a few years ago, Israeli private company, uh, Bereshit, two, uh, Bereshit 1, sorry, uh, tried to land on the lunar, uh, uh, on, the la on the moon and failed in the last few seconds, very similar to Chandrayaan 2. And so Israel is actually playing a critical role uh, in space as well. Now, UAE, I think, is exciting because just this year in February, the uh, Mars mission, which is uh, the HOPE mission, uh, entered Mars orbit, the first uh, to be uh, a first Middle Eastern country to do so. And they actually project their program as that. So the uh, conversations coming out of UAE, including the ambassador to the US, uh, pointed out that the UAE uh, HOPE mission is uh, the Arab world's moonshot. So you can see that they are uh, starting to understand the important geopolitical implications and their budget is pretty large too. If you look at what is available uh, in open source, it's about $5 billion. Now the UAE has one of the most ambitious missions among all spacefaring nations. They want to invest in a Mars city by 2117, which is the 100th year celebration of the establishment of the UAE. Uh, they have a UAE space vision, uh, including a UAE space agency, of course, which was established in 2014. Their space vision wants to use space to support their national interests, a diversification of the economy. So they really realize the economic benefits that space can give them. And of course, international partnerships, they are a part of the Artemis Accord. So the UAE actually has ambitions to develop itself as a space hub in the Middle East. Now, what is interesting is that on the day that the UAE Mars mission entered Mars orbit, uh, Turkish President Erdogan came up with a speech in which he indicated that Turkey has ambitions to uh, go to the moon by 2023, which is the 100th year establishment of the Turkish Republic, which was established in 1923. Uh, I don't know how he's going to do that, but if you listen to his speech, it's about using international partnership in the beginning, and then, of course, establishing their own launch system and their own spaceport. So the Turkey Space Agency was established in 2018. They actually have invested in rocket technology, for example, manufacturing of low-yield rockets in several of the conflicts that they have engaged with. Saudi Arabia, again, uh, the Saudi space mission was established in 2018. It has a budget of about a billion. 
so the goal of the King Abdulaziz City for Science and Technology is that it wants to invest in launch infrastructure. So you can see almost all the new space uh, countries want to invest in launch infrastructure. And then the Saudis also want to manufacture uh, spacecraft and wants to establish international partnerships, including with China. Uh, and I think China and Saudi Arabia partnered in the Chang'e 4 uh, far side uh, mission that China accomplished in 2019. And uh, actually the, the Saudi actually invested in Virgin Galactic uh, about a billion dollars in 2017, but that was pulled out uh, Virgin Galactic pulled out because of the Washington Post reporter issue uh, and they protested against it. So you can see that uh, the new space actors are investing in space, they're establishing their space agencies and not just investing, they're actually not investing rhetorically, they're putting in the money. And what does that mean? That means that they will be able to then draw talent from across the world to come and work in their space agencies and in fact, one of the goal for Turkey to establish its space agency was that Erdogan wanted to stop the brain drain of their scientists to other countries and were offering them pretty high salaries. So I think the nature of space today is it is located within a competitive sphere, but most nations have woken up to the economic possibilities of space. And so I think their concern, and this is something that we don't speak much about. So the biggest concern among all the new space actors is that they do not want the United States epistemic community and the uh, you know, universities to take over the discourse and create uh, pressure to, to forward just one particular understanding of space. They want to have their own epistemic communities, by which I mean policy community, academic community, journalistic community, to talk and to uh, invest in space so that they also play a major role in crafting the rules of the future. They do not want a repeat of the Cold War when the US and the USSR basically created the regulatory frameworks for us that we are still uh, you know, using today. Interesting. And it's, it's super interesting to you know, find out how uh, the developments are you know, in the bigger picture, how, how they look like and how things can develop in the future. And I wanted to ask you about the future. So how do you think that uh, the future of what's going to be the impact you know, of all the geopolitics that, that we discussed um, over the last few uh, minutes about how you know it's going to have an impact on military because obviously there's a lot of talk about uh, the space force in US and you know I'm based in France and there's of course the talk of a, a French space force uh, I believe there are other countries as well which have kind of formed something similar so of course there's an impact on the military and then you know you touched upon earlier in the conversation about the impact on space resources and you know if if you were to uh, you know, start mining asteroids or if you're going to go to the moon and start uh, using the resources on the moon, how is it going to have an impact? So it seems like it's going to have an impact on all of these aspects, correct? Yes. Yeah, so uh, again, so if you look at the investment in the military space, uh, you know, infrastructure or organizations, the, China was the first country to establish a separate space force in 2015 with the People's Liberation Army Strategic Support Force. Uh, the first to recognize that this kind of organization is critical because uh, China is dependent on space, not just for military, but also civilian infrastructure. 
The U.S. followed with its own uh, space force uh, that was established in 2019. Uh, but the important point is that if you look at the uh, philosophy behind the establishment of the U.S. Space Force, so the conversations and the advocates of the U.S. Space Force have been talking about it for the last 20 years, because I think after the Gulf War, there was a great realization, the first Gulf War of 1991, there was a great realization that the military is very much dependent on space for everything, command and control, navigation, almost any kind of activity that they do. So the realization that space assets can be vulnerable, especially once China tested its ASAT weapon in 2007, created the urgent need for the establishment of a separate organization. And so uh, the other important point that I hear from the advocates of the Space Force is that the military in a democratic system is not existing because it wants to engage in war. The main reason a military exists is because it wants to secure free lanes of communication, including the U.S. Navy that was established uh, to ensure that the Barbary pirates did not attack U.S. merchantmen uh, in the, in the 16th, 18th century, about 1794. And so the similar kind of vision is seen for the Space Force. So the advocates argue that Space Force is not just about militarization or war fighting in space. It's about that future when nations will have their citizens living on the moon, for example, or living on a space uh, habitat. What happens if something goes wrong? What happens if there is a disaster? Who comes to their rescue? The Space Force is envisioned to develop capacity for cislunar space so that it can engage in rescue, disaster response, which militaries do every day today, for example, when we have a tsunami. So the reason that there is this growing investment in military space is given the realization I talked about, but also the future that most countries are anticipating. So Japan has established its own space domain unit. France, as you say, has its own space force. India is talking about establishing a separate uh, defense space agency. And so because of the changes we talked about in your podcast, there is a growing realization that in order to ensure security and prosperity, there has to be someone that is capable of doing some kind of law enforcement in space when it becomes crowded, not just by satellites, but by human missions uh, in the next 20, 30 years. And so you can see that there is a growing investment in that kind of capacity as well. Absolutely. And, and it seems like this is probably, you know, the, the whole um dynamics around how this is going to develop over the next few years you know the uncertainty and it's it's probably why i think people are you know becoming huge fans of elon musk because he's kind of you know painting a different picture is that is that why you think there is so much let's say of course you know he's uh, he's selling the story of you know humanity in mars but he's also selling it in a way that you know governments are not involved and it's probably a, you know an individual or his company basically embarking on that mission. So is that why you think the his story has, you know, that big of, um, let's say, attraction with, uh, with the wider world? You know, it's not just Americans uh, where, where SpaceX is based. It's all over the world. You know, everybody seems to buy his story. Is this why you think? Well, I think Elon Musk is an interesting story because, as you remember, when he first started uh, SpaceX in 2002, um, it in the beginning, it had failures. And so it required funding from NASA to a seed funding, especially to develop the Falcon 1 and then the Falcon 9. And of course, when it succeeded, it was reusable. And so I think that's why 
and it oh my god the amount of uh influence and impact that had on our launch capability cannot be overemphasized enough the launch costs coming down his now promise that with starship launches will come down to $200 per pound and even lower that's going to change the way we view space it's no more going to be an elite state based astronaut system we'll have private citizens being able to go to space and not just billionaires and millionaires right and i think that is why his story has such draw because he was a self-made person made good investments was willing to take risk and also willing to say things which uh, appear inspiring the problem although of course is that he still lives in a system of states he will still need permission uh, from earth uh, especially from the agencies that be uh he still is based in the united states but the regulatory frameworks matter and so states still matter in terms of uh how he functions but i think i'll end by saying that this is the critical change from the cold war today you have the president of indonesia talking to elon musk and not a president of the united states about developing a spaceport in indonesia given its equatorial uh you know advantages and asking Elon Musk to invest in Indonesia and that is the power that space agencies have today or a man like Elon Musk has today because of the successes that he has had you had uh, uh the turkish uh, prime minister erdogan talk to musk about investing in turkey in a direct phone call now that kind of conversations are possible in the world of today because of the fact that musk and spacex has not just talked about capacity but have actually been able to demonstrate that capacity and have been actually able to launch not just uh, robotic missions but including astronauts to the international space station and i think that is why musk is such an interesting uh, ex example to the world a person who failed and did not give up uh, who was laughed out of rooms when he talked about reusability Uh, around 2004 and yet continued to invest in that capability and so i think the challenges he faced uh, including in the us he had to sue the us air force for a fair uh, contract uh, and so those are the stories that inspire people i think about him absolutely yeah. i mean i hope i mean i guess we can keep <laughs> going on but um i want to end the conversation by asking you something you know about based on everything that we have seen uh, talked about sorry uh, what do you think or what are you actually worried about uh, that might happen you know obviously you know people can make predictions and obviously there is a lot of utopian uh, visions um, in the in the world and you know how they look at the space industry but do you worry about uh, a future and you know hope that we don't end up in that future are there anything like that that you that, that you want to mention Yeah I have to quickly I have two worries one worry is that because of the the absence of any uh, regulatory framework uh, with regard to space resources and the extraction of it I worry that we might have a future where say two countries want to establish a non-interference zone on say the lunar south pole and because the lunar south pole is so rich in resources there could lead to confrontation because given the fact that there is no dispute mechanism that can resolve such a issue uh, i think unless we come up with uh, international regulatory frameworks of how to deal with that issue 
uh, that could lead to some kind of confrontation. And that is very much possible given the history of how societies and nations have behaved. The other worry I have is that we have a huge uh, you know, impact of uh, very negative framing of how space has been historically, including the uh, framing of colonization and how exploitation happened. Coming from India, I grew up with that kind of discourse and was affected by it, listening to the tales of how my grandfather had to fight against British colonialism. But I worry that we tend to utilize that framework to an extent that it might actually limit the growth of space exploration and development, which actually, very surprisingly, nations and societies in Africa, Latin America, Asia, I talk to students across continents, are so excited about. So my worry is that because people or conversations in the developed world do not engage with school students, for example, uh, in, in remote areas, do not recognize that these young people want to go to space and are inspired by space and want to do it peacefully, but want to have economic benefits from their space investment. And my worry is that given the spillover of our negative conversation and framing uh, historically, uh, we might repeat some of the mistakes and in fact limit human potential in space. Yeah, I think that gives um, that gives uh, hopefully some food for thought for for the listeners. And um, thank you very much. Thank you, Namrata. Thanks for taking the time. And this was a very, very insightful conversation, very interesting conversation. Thanks for taking the time again. Thank you, Aravin. And thank you for hosting this podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be a part of it. Hey, this is Aravind again. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Terrawatt Space Podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also feel free to sign up for my newsletter, TerraWatch on Substack, that is terrawatch.substack.com, where I attempt to decode the recent developments in space tech and its impact on Earth. Thanks again and hope to see you for the next episode.